This is the Rockonomics Podcast, episode number 41. I'm your host, Dill, and today we have a short but sweet conversation with guitarist Ryan Roxy. Ryan is a veteran rocker who's been associated with the band Candy, Electric Angels, he's played with Gilby Clark, Slash's Snake Pit, and Alice Cooper, as well as his solo project, Roxy 77, and other self-titled releases. I met up with Ryan while he was on tour with Alice, and our conversation goes a little something like this. seen you before because I saw Candy open up for Corey Hart. Yeah, that was right before I joined okay. the band. Okay. But that was their first big U.S. tour. But I joined the band a couple months after that. And then the uh, relationships that I maintained from that band eventually led me into playing with Alice Cooper. I always say that whatever band you're playing in currently will lead you probably to your next gig or lead you to some sort of new adventure and journey with music. So Gilby Clark and I played together in Candy, and Gilby Clark ultimately uh, put me in his solo band when he was in Guns N' Roses and decided to go solo. And then from there, Alice Cooper caught notice of that. And from there, Gilby gave me his blessing to go try out for Alice Cooper, and stars aligned, and I had a good tryout, and it was a good day. And, you know, over 20 years later, we're... Still rocking and rolling. That's awesome. I'd love to get into that. Now, is that you know, is that advice something you learned along the way, or did somebody give that early on? It's like you know, you, you know, <laughs> be cool to your bandmates. Little, yeah, I think you just, learn it from experience, and you learn it from observing other bands. You know that mm-hmm. seem to have a lot of success early on, then somehow in, inevitably crash. I think the key to this business is knowing how to deal with other personalities whether they're bigger personalities, smaller personalities, stronger personalities, weaker personalities. There's so many different types of variables to deal with with people. People always say being in a band is like being married without the sex. And it's, it, it is really true because it's, it's one of those things where you have to live with these people day in and day out for most of your year. I always say that I have two families. I have the one that I chose back you know with my wife and then I have two kids as well from a previous marriage so I chose that but I also chose this family too this rock and roll family but a lot of times you know you you, you don't choose who's working with you on a certain any certain tour right those are powers that are beyond you but you learn how to deal with them and luckily in this band there is no crazy egos because we take our example from the top down right you know alice cooper is one of the most humble guys i know and even though his name is on the marquee he gives us a chance to shine during the show each and every night mm-hmm. he seems also unselfish in your extracurricular activities he's he's he supportive not just unselfish he's very supportive i just put out a solo record this year called imagine your reality and Alice has played it on his radio station, on his radio show, Nights with Alice Cooper. He's hyped it up. He hypes it up, you know, on stage. He gives me a lot of uh, credit that I really um, am thankful for. Mm-hmm. Um, let's go back a little bit to the beginning of your music relationship, I guess. Yes. I mean, I always, in my personal experience... Unfortunately, I was I, I like I fell in love with the drums. So to the first lesson in rockonomics, mm-hmm. going to my parents and say, "Hey, I want a drum set." And they're like, "Well, back in the '70s, it was probably three, four hundred dollars. That wasn't going to happen." 
What was what got you first involved in music? I had a love affair with the drums as well. I had a, a five-piece slingerland kit. Um, I first started out on the trumpet because my father had played the trumpet, so there was a trumpet uh, in the house. My mom played the drums, so I was always fascinated with the drums. I did have a drum kit growing up, but I quickly recognized that you know maybe trumpet wasn't going to lead me on to a lifetime of playing music. You know, it wasn't going to maybe pay that paycheck. I wasn't into jazz all that much. I was always into rock and roll. And what's the one thing that rock and roll had? That was those guitars. And guitars seemed a hell of a lot easier to carry around with me than, than a whole drum set. So uh, there was a guitar that was laying on the couch all the time through my youth. So I just started picking it up at a very early age. And even though I didn't know how to play it in those young younger days, I strummed it and I air guitared it. You know, even though I had a guitar in my hand, I I, I would I would act like I knew the songs right. in these old Beatle records because my parents had Beatle records. The neighbors next door uh, were big Beatle fans, and I remember me and uh, my next door neighbor Adam. We used to sort of I'd play drums on Tupperware sometimes, and he'd play this guitar that he didn't know chords of. Then we'd switch instruments, and we'd go through all of the White Album. I remember that album in particular. So that's pretty cool. What other were some of your influences growing up? I, I think we're a similar age. I'm yeah. Saying, so we like the 70s. Born in 1965. So I, I think I grew up with 70s music right. and all these great musicians of the 70s. And luckily I've been able to meet most, if not all of them, all of my guitar heroes. So basically the influences I had were the guitar heroes and the posters on my wall. You know, I had Cheap Trick on my wall. I had Queen on my wall. Mm -hmm. Brian May is one of my favorite guitar players of all time. I had Frampton Comes Alive, Peter Frampton up there as well. And I also had some guitar players that might not uh, get the same sort of headlines as a lot of these other guys, but they're, to me, so influential and so amazing at writing parts and writing tasty solos. And those were guys like Neil Giraldo yep, from Pat Benatar. Uh, Elliot Easton from a band called The Cars oh, yeah. just great songs just great solos sure. I always said you know if you're going to play a guitar solo you try and write a story within that song that helps out the whole entire song so write a little story with your solos instead of just making them sound like scales right did you grow up with a lot of pop sensibility I think so yeah I think I grew up in the age of the Bee Gees, Saturday Night uh, Fever yeah. soundtrack. Sure. So there was definitely that going on. I grew up with some funk influence because the Ohio players and Sly and the Family Stone uh, were very popular as well, War. And so the radio station that I listened to back in the day was a little radio station from the Bay Area called KFRC. And it would play you know, hard rock next to right. sort of disco next to ABBA, which is great pop music, next to something heavier, which could have been Alice Cooper back in those days. Yeah, I distinctly sure. remember hearing Cheap Trick next to the Ohio players and like going, wow, that's different, but hey. Yeah, I feel like yeah. I had a similar uh, childhood. It was just whatever was in the top 40. The top 40 was eclectic, but you know the, yeah. the stations were genre kind of oriented, it seemed back then. Well, the one thing that sticks out to me with all those types of music was there was guitar. Mm -hmm. It was always guitar. It was always guitar driven. Even if it was kind of a little bit more on the pop end, you could hear electric guitar. Mm -hmm. And that's the only thing that's probably been missing 
in this later years of, of pop music, which with this new solo album that I put out, Imagine Your Reality, I'm just trying to bring it back there, sort of suggest that, hey, there can be pop-oriented songs with heavy guitars you know, that still have that influence. Right. It's good melody. Um, so at what point, you must have been going through high school playing in bands, at what point were you deciding to make a, make a go go at it? Pretty early on, around the age of 11, I decided, that this okay, this is what I want to do. I want to become those posters on my wall. So I started taking the guitar a bit more seriously, started doing my motor skills, I call it, you know, learning the scales and just going through them every single day. At least, I... There's people that say they practice till their fingers bleed and their fingers and they practice for hours and hours. I, I didn't do that, but I did. When I did practice, I did concentrate on learning those motor skills so that I didn't have to concentrate later mm-hmm. in years when I was trying to write a solo. Because, like I said, I don't want my solos to sound like scales. It's every cool once in a while cool to rip out a harmonic minor or a diminished type of scale riff. But I wanted the solos to sound like stories. Right. Um, so at what age did you kind of... Um, Start making money? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, or yeah. did you? I mean, well, I, first I, feel, gig, I feel like everyone's story is the same. It's like the first... Uh, I always you know, say, first, you know, your, your first gig is when you get paid. And I guess I got paid in beer. Because I, uh, I remember my first gig was a keg party. And, you know, uh, I think it was at my time, the girl, my girlfriend's... Uh, house which the parents had gone away for the weekend and so we turned their house into a crazy high school party and then I uh, the band that I was in we got paid in I think beer that first gig but then quickly on like around age 15 or 16 I got this gig at a club called uh, The Stage in Danville, California and it was crazy because back in those days Metallica had played that club Mm -hmm. you know and there was a lot of Bay Area metal bands that had played that club. It was a great band. I was influenced by a called The Squares, which featured a certain guitar player named Joe Satriani. So we actually opened up. I never opened up for Metallica, but we did open up for The Squares once or twice. There was a band called Head On that was very Aerosmith-influenced. One of, probably one of the biggest influences that not a lot of people know about to this day, this band called Head On from the Bay Area. Amazing. Amazing songs, amazing singer. But those opening gigs, even though we didn't get paid much, right. 50 bucks, 60 bucks, we, we did it. And yeah. that was kind of cool to you know not have a driver's license, but have some money in my pocket for playing guitar. <laughs> when did uh, a record company come into play? <laughs> not until... Or, or at least taking it to the next level, I guess. Well, taking it to the next level years later. I mean, years later, I've been passed on by so many labels early in our career. And the first couple bands I was telling you about, I was played with, with a band called Candy. After and they were signed to Mercury, but soon after I joined the band, we weren't on Mercury anymore. So we were looking for a deal. And then, but how that, did that even that, that sounds like a great opportunity? You're joining a signed band. Yes. Was there any? Is there any context to that? That's that was actually there's an old. Uh, Brady Bunch and those people that don't know who Brady Bunch is it's an old 70's TV show and there's a famous episode called the Johnny Bravo episode and it's the, uh, I think it's Peter Brady gets the gig because he had the right suit he fit, he the, fit suit. the jacket he fit the jacket yeah, and there was these 
there was these black-haired, spiked black-haired guys in this band called Candy in Los Angeles playing around. And then I was playing in another band, uh, but I had black spiked hair. So all the... There's a bunch of fans who were saying, hey, you should be in Candy. And then a bunch of Candy fans going, hey, there's this guy named Ryan that should be in your band as well. So when the opportunity came around, they came and checked me out playing with, with this band I was in. And they were like, hey, you wear a black leather jacket. You have black spiked hair. Why don't we jam? And then we did. And then, like, to this day, we still have a, a lifelong connection and friendship. <laughs> and you also had, they had a hit. I mean... So Whatever you, happened to fun? Yeah, and yeah. you joined during that tour. I, yes, yeah, I joined right after that, and then there was a transition with the lead singer, and Gilby decided, or the guitar player, decided to get another guitar player, which ended up being me, and decided to sing. That sort of diffused into two different bands, which is Kill for Thrills. Mm -hmm. Gilby went on to do a band called Kill for Thrills, and then after that, Guns and Roses, and then the three of us that were left over found a singer and formed a band called Electric Angels. Played all around uh, Los Angeles, every opening gig we could, uh, for a bunch of cool bands, Zodiac, Mind Warp, uh, Iggy Pop. We had some really cool openers, opening gigs, but we couldn't get signed. Every label passed on us, even the label that eventually ended up signing us on the East Coast. Okay, so we ended up doing something a little bit different when everybody in the late 80s, mid 80s, late 80s was... Uh, gravitating towards Los Angeles, we actually got out of town and we established ourselves in New York City. And we got signed after about three or four shows in New York to Atlantic Records. I said the same label that passed on us when we were in Los Angeles and we put out an album. And to this day, it's sort of a, it's a cult classic because it's not a lot of people have it, not a lot of people know about it, but the people that do really like it. And I'm happy about that. What were the were you learning any lessons in terms of how the business worked? I mean, you already been through a couple of different record labels. Always learning how the business worked. Always learning that the musician was probably going to end up being at the bottom when it came to the pay totem pole. Right. Because you know, if you think about it, just structurally the way it works, a manager would take twenty percent, not after costs off the top. So any lab, any sort of advance we would get from a label, if it was $100,000, a manager would take either 15 or 20% right off the top, not off the bottom at the end of net, off of gross. So we learned the terms net and gross really quickly and kind of figured out, well, hey man, we need to just play and play and play because when we're out there playing, gaining fans, shaking hands, and I do that, to, I do it to this day. I go out and I do this thing called the Rock and Roll parking lot where I shake hands, uh, sign whatever people have to sign because I know it's important because they're the people that are supporting me now have been supporting me for years. And if they haven't been supporting me for years, hopefully they will be because of the sort of dedication that I have to our fans mm -hmm. as well as their dedication to our music and hopefully the projects that I'm involved with. Okay. Um, unfortunately, we have a, a condensed amount of time. So yes, I'm okay. Gonna, I know. Push through, but um, Electric Angels was around 1990. Electric you know? Angels was <laughs> right around those late 80s, early 90s. Okay. Uh, but it started 
like right in the mid 80s, 86, 86 to 90, mm-hmm. 91. It was actually a really good time to be in a guitar driven rock and roll band. Oh, yeah, for sure. It was during the LA sort of hair metal scene. Yeah. And it was uh, real. You know, there was a lot of camaraderie with all the bands. And I think that there was different scenes that had that camaraderie uh, with later years in, in the 90s with Seattle bands. Right. And so, but I, in the last, I don't know, the last 10 years, 15 years, I haven't seen a certain scene pop up yeah. where, where there's that thing. And I always say that you're going to get a genre of music happening. It's not going to be just one band. They're, they're having great one-off bands that have come up over the years. But to get a really good scene going, a good genre, you need a few of them. Yeah. And that starts a movement. Yeah. They tend to feed off one another, see one another, influence one another, push one another. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Um, so at this point, you know, when do you get steady work, for lack of a better description? <laughs> is, is that when Alice comes along? Or are you... you well, know? I toured with Gilby Clark... And we did a, a U.S. world tour as well. U.S., Canada. First time I'd played a lot of places that I'd never played before. I'd, I'd done U.S. Stay tours time. with with I've done U.S. tours with Electric Angels, but we had never done the type of level of touring. We got to do some shows with Aerosmith down in South America Stadium. So it was a, a Gilby opened a lot of doors for me. And then with that sort of experience of be, having played some big rock shows, I had the confidence to go out for a gig like Alice Cooper. And Alice Cooper just opened the doors for all those bucket list gigs, all those bucket list venues that you always want to play when you're a kid. Madison Square Garden, Hollywood Bowl, um, you know, where I'm living currently is in Sweden. We played uh, the Globin. So these types of places were like, I, I just check them off the list. And I, like I say, I owe Alice Cooper so much for letting me ride those coattails for so many years. And why you had a little bit of a break at one time. I did have a break in, in 2005. I did the 2005 tour. Then in early 2006, uh, I relocated the family to Sweden. I wanted to see what it was like to uh, sort of live in Europe, Mm -hmm. experience Europe and watch the kids grow up. And I was able to spend those early years with the kids, uh, just ch- chilling with them. Yeah, yeah. It didn't work out for my marriage, but it worked out for them growing up in Sweden. And I think it's been a really great experience. Who knows if that's going to be forever? I, you know, I, I've always had such love and such dedication to the United States as well. So mm-hmm. we'll see what happens. But, you know, I rejoined Alice Cooper in 2012. There was another opportunity that came up. A guitar position opened up and I grabbed it. And we've been touring every year since. And it's been a fairly consistent lineup for, what, the last five, yes, years? Yes, this, this, this is the most consistent Alice Cooper lineup since the original band. Okay. Proud to be a part of that. Yeah, that's great. Let's get into your solo work. Sure. So, as you, as you mentioned, you have a new, uh, relatively new album. Was that dropped yeah. in May? Was it's it, still dropping. That, okay. the, the thing is, I've I decided to release it a little bit differently than the actual standard way you would release an album. You can get all 10 songs that are on it, 10 songs, 10 guitar solos, but you have to buy the tangible copy in order to get them, the, either the, meaning the album or the CD. So that, for one, puts you as a dedicated fan once you get the entire album. But if you want to listen to it song by song, 
I'm releasing each song digitally every couple months to give each song its little uh, spotlight. Right. Because these songs are pretty close to me. I think songs for anybody that writes them and, and, and records them and it takes all that time, you want people to actually appreciate each and every tune. So releasing them digitally individually allows me to do that. Okay. Now, is there a concerted effort, too, that the kind of the landscapes change and the album, you know, I, I guess maybe the younger fans or millennials don't digest albums like we yeah. did as well, kids? Most people don't want to hear what's good. They want to hear what's next. <laughs> you know what I'm saying sometimes? And so with this sort of mentality... I can always have something next coming because I think they're all good, right? Mm-hmm. But being, yeah. you know, an egotistical songwriter as we are, we're all kind of like protective and we all believe in our songs. But I think all these songs are worthy of a chance and you never know. So that means I have 10 chances when I release these 10 songs, 10 chances for someone to discover Ryan Roxy and say, oh, I like that. I'll check out some other stuff. Then they can go back and check out the whole category. Now, is it an independent label or is it self I have two different labels uh, that's under an umbrella of my own. Okay. So, Lenata Records is my sort of own. And then our vinyl uh, is being released by Bellyache Records. You can go to bellyacherecords.com and check them out. And the CD, physical, uh, tangible copy of the CD, is being uh, distributed through Cargo Records, which is based in the UK. Okay. So we'll see how, what, what happens. I mean, here's the thing. As, as an artist these days, as any sort of recording artist, we got to lay all our own groundwork. And then after we lay all our own groundwork, then maybe some label you know, with big, deep pockets comes in and says, hey, we see what you've done. Good work. Let's pour some more money into it. Okay. But for me, it's all about proving it to myself that this idea works, releasing 10 songs individually, digitally, uh, sort of allowing the album only to be available in a tangible copy for the entire album. So, mm-hmm. so far it's working. So you being your own record company, so to speak, yep. do you, and I, I, it's a loaded question, or actually I'll just give it away. I, you know, I noticed you've got like lyric videos. Yes. Very well done. Yeah. Know, not- we have a guy named in Sweden named Gustav Kronfeld. Yeah, and honestly, I'm not selfish and I'm not uh, coveting him at all because I want him to work as much. I told him, I go, by next year, I won't be able to afford you (laughs) because he's getting so much notoriety from these lyric videos and he's got great ideas. So luckily I have a guy that's really talented, really inspired and hungry to make these types of videos and help me uh, with this whole journey. And that's the idea with the lyric videos. All the lyrics, all the videos that I release for this album will be lyric videos because to me that's sort of the new age way of reading the liner notes. Yeah. People don't really read liner notes which is, anymore. Which is sad. That's yeah, sad but thing. I mean it's all it, it, it's a di- it, it's an experience. It's a different type of experience yeah. now. A more digital experience. Um, but the reason I ask is the quality of the videos is very good. And when you call them lyric videos, I think you're selling them short because there is video. I mean, there's yeah. a shot video of you on the desert for the dancer. Yes. That was Denise, Denise uh, Trisello, that, that basically did an amazing job with a camera and two people and 120 degree weather out in the Las Vegas desert. I mean, if you don't know what I'm talking about, you can go to my official YouTube channel and you can see the newest video. It's called uh, God Put a Smile Upon Your Face. It's, a, it's actually from a, a big play. band from Coldplay. And I think uh, 
we did a, a, a twist on the song. You know, we definitely laid a lot of guitars on there, a lot of guitar layering, layering, but we kept the vibe still that a little bit esoteric, a little bit moody. And the way she shot it and the way Gustav overlaid the lyric videos was great. And it all was affordable, too. Yes. Because we kept that budget down. Everything in a budget is down now. That's, that's what I was getting to. But do you approach this whole thing like the album itself, the way you're going to promote it, the way you're going to you know, upload videos? Do you have a budget in mind or are you, just, are you kind of, it's kind of as it comes up? You My assess? hope is that through album sales, we can afford to make the videos and the next record and then go from there. And if it goes, and you put everything back into it. Right. If we can put everything that we make off of actual tangible album sales, then we can put it back into the recording of a new record or new videos, new lyric videos. Then, then I'm happy because then it's self-sustaining. Yeah. Okay. Um, I end every show with the same five questions that everybody Let's do gets. It. Uh, first question is: Your house is on fire. What do you run in and save that's uh, has sentimental value? That's music. Kind well, of this music of, oriented. Kind of well, obviously, it's, music it's, it's, it's my wife and kids that I want to make yeah, sure they're safe. They're are safe. safe, and the animals are safe. I'll give you that. Yeah. Um, I think it would have to be uh, my '72 Les Paul Gold Top, because that has been around with me for so much of the journey. It's been around with me since the Electric Angels days. It's cracked. It's reliced. It's it, but it sounds amazing. And it's from 1972, man. You have was to. that a big deal when you got it? Was that, yes, it was. Was that a major expense on your part, or was it a deal, or did somebody give it to you? No, I, I traded in like about maybe four <laughs> or five guitars plus cash to get like, a, I want a real guitar, like a real Gibson Les Paul, and I had a real Marshall half stack, and that was my ammo. That was my gun and my machine, my weapons for, for sort of taking on the rock it and roll world. It was the two of the trade to move forward. Yeah. Um, second question is, if I was at liberty to give you a million dollar check for one charity, which charity would you donate it to? Mm, that's a good one because I, I always look at charities that have the lowest administration costs. Um, I think that Doctors Without Borders does amazing work and, and I always check out and keep on tabs about what their administration costs are and they seem to be really, really good. Um, there's also a, a charity that I've worked with over the years called Art of Elysium. And I worked with them because I went into hospitals and played music for kids that are terminally ill. Mm -hmm. And I think that's an important job as well. Yes. So I would probably end up not just putting it into one charity. I'd put it into a bunch and they would have to have A or A plus ratings. Right. Okay. <laughs> Question three is what would your walk-up music be to the Pearly Gates? Walk up music to the pearly gates. Wow, would it be weird to have one of your own songs? Because I mean, I think you put your heart and soul in it. <laughs> yeah. Um, hey, there's a song I have called Second Chances." So I guess if I'm going to the pearly gates, I might get a second chance. Then. All right. Flip side of that is what song stuck on repeat in hell? Ooh, repeat in hell. Um, you know what's weird is I tend to filter out the really bad song. That, uh, that, you know, I tend to filter them out. Too. I really do. Because there's, not a, there's no songs that really come on and I go, oh, I can't stand this song. Um, but I'm sure it would probably, probably involve Mariah Carey in some sense. I don't know why, because I think she has a great voice. Sure. It's just that I'm not a fan of the songs mm -hmm. that she sings. Is that weird? No, not at all. Okay. I don't know. 
And here's some of the other answers we've had. <laughs> um, last question is, what's the best concert you've ever witnessed Ooh. as a fan? Um, I think I saw Rock and Roll History when I was in Sweden, and I saw the Foo Fighter David Grohl Break a Leg oh, no show. I no actually way. was there at the Break a Leg show. And the Break a Leg show, for those of you that don't know... Uh, two songs in, or maybe even the first song in, it was like Monkey Wrench, or whatever that was in the set. I think it was the second song. But, you know, Dave goes to the side of the stage doing one of his runs, and he just slips, and he breaks his friggin' leg on stage, or off stage, obviously. So he, they, they, there's a big, long break, and the band is still sitting there doing covers. They're, they're playing covers in between, and lo and behold... You know, these paramedics come out, EMT comes out with Dave Grohl in this splint and the big cast. And that, that mofo finished the entire set. And you don't understand the amount of energy and insane just positivity that exuded from a guy coming, breaking his leg at a show, coming back to finish the show. Yeah, it was so inspiring. So, so that great. would probably be one of my top ones. Yeah, that's great. It's funny. Um, <laughs> oh, were you there as a as a fan, or did you? I was there as a fan. Pull the strings and get back. Or, you know, no, no, no. I was watching or, it as a fan. That's great. And um, completely blew my mind. And you know, we've we've met Dave Grohl over the years. He's always been a stand-up, uh, cool dude. But the respect level for me as a professional. Yeah. Entertainer, not just a musician, as an entertainer, to come back from that. Yeah. You know, I don't care if it's sports, acting, uh, musician, to come when you break your leg <laughs> in anything. I don't care. <laughs> you know, yeah, you don't want to put on another two-hour show. <laughs> and he did, That's and great. he did it amazingly well. That's very so. cool. It's very cool. You were actually there. Yeah. All right, Ryan. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks for having me, man. I appreciate it, man. All right, we'll do it again. Thank you, Ryan Roxy. You know, he made a point of saying how he really appreciates and makes time for his fans. And I saw that firsthand when he came out to meet me. I was outside the stage door and so were a group of them. And he stopped and talked to each one of them like they were all old friends he was seeing again. And he signed merch and he took photos. So he's walking the walk. That wasn't just lip service. I knew I only had a set amount of time with him. And each minute he spent with his fans was the minute I was losing but I respect the hell out of him for that dedication, and by the looks of it, so do his fans. Okay, you can keep up with Ryan on his website, ryanroxy.com, and follow him on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter. He drops a song every Monday, so it's well worth following for that. Also, check out his daughter's Instagram page, Paw Guitar Picks, to buy rare and collectible guitar picks Ryan has amassed over the years. As for us, you can follow the Rockonomics Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And if you really want to be our best friend, go to iTunes and subscribe. Give us a five-star rating and leave us a flattering comment. We'll be back next Tuesday with one of my white whales I've been chasing for well over a year and finally caught up to. So we look forward to you joining us for that. Episode 41 is done. Good night, Cleveland. 